Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode, and I am happy to be here. Uh, invited into your home. I uh, want to put a plug in for the second part of my interview with Jen Kiaba this week in my Sensibly Speaking podcast. We go deep on the Moonies, the Unification Church, and uh, the experiences of Jen growing up as a second-gen member in the Moonies, a horrific tale of abuse. I mean, absolutely horrifying stuff. Um, that I want you guys to listen to and understand and know about because uh, people need to know that this kind of abusive nonsense is going on around them all the time. And, and we really go into this in some detail in this podcast and talk about why it is that this has something to do with all of us. This is not just some atrocity tale from 20 years ago that one woman suffered. This is stuff that's going on right here, right now. And it could be happening right next door to you. And we go into detail about how that is possible. So um, so I hope you guys will check out that interview. I really had a, I, I thought it was a very informative uh, couple podcasts with Jen on this topic. So anyway, check that out. And also we did a current events episode on the critical conversations last night, talked about Russia a lot, propaganda, uh, mind control, uh, thought reform, that sort of thing. It connected with what's going on over there. I know all eyes are over there right now, and they should be. It's a very important topic, and there's a lot to know about it. And I'm not you know, claiming to be a full, fully rounded expert in all things Russia, but I can comment on some aspects of it from my uh, perspective and training. So anyway, I hope you guys will check that show out as well. And now let's get on with your questions. Steve Wood. When Mike Rinder told the story of his defection from Scientology, he said that as soon as his wife found out... She immediately wrote hate mail about him. How can not only a married couple, but a mother and a father turn so quickly and possess the ability to write extreme vitriolic hate mail against her husband? Agreed, we don't know the state of their marriage at that time, but not only did his wife do this, but so did his son and daughter join in with vitriolic hate mail disowning him in such a way that I found it to be shocking. How does this happen so quickly? Can you please shed some light on this situation? Steve, this is a multi-layered uh, situation, and I will try my best to address this in, a, in a, an A to B fashion here for this format. You got a, you got a couple of layers here. One, you have um, just intimate partner betrayal, okay? Familial betrayal is sometimes the worst betrayal. And the betrayal, of course, aligns is centered around Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and the Sea Org which is what all of these people were part of or were involved in, uh, certainly with Scientology. And uh, I don't know that Rinder's parents were Sea Org members, but, um, but they were hardcore, hardcore Scientologists. And of course, his uh, wife and kids were. Now, what we're talking about here with the Sea Org is, remember, we are talking about the fanatics of Scientology, the hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool, all-in, 24-7, this is the mission. And I, and I don't know that that gets across so easily all the time, how dedicated and fanatical Sea Org members are 
about Scientology. If they're not fanatical and they're not at that level, they don't generally last very long in the Sea Org. And Mike Rinder was in the Sea Org for decades, raised his family as a Sea Org member, married within the Sea Org. So everything he knew and his whole culture and world were about the Sea Org. And so the thing about the Sea Org is the highest loyalty the, the central core tenet of the Sea Org is to forward and carry out command intention. You exist to service L. Ron Hubbard and his purpose and mission. That's what your life purpose becomes as a Sea Org member. You are not, you don't have hobbies and side ventures and other things that you're doing with your life. When you're a Sea Org member, that's pretty much all you are. You know, you might possibly be able to spend an hour or two every few weeks at some other sort of task, maybe build a model or, or uh, you know, read a book or, or, or watch a movie or something. I mean, the, the exposure to the outside world and the, and the relatingness of yourself with the outside world is almost wholly non-existent. So what this, what I'm, what I'm, the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is because your first and last loyalty as a Sea Org member is to the Sea Org. It's not to your family. It's not to your relatives. It's not to your friends. And, and I said this often when I first got out, I said this many, many times that your friends are only your friends to the degree that they're Scientologists, as a, as a Scientologist, as a Sea Org member, right? And really, as a Sea Org member, you're really, really, your only true friends are other Sea Org members. You just can't afford to be tightly connected with people who aren't in the Sea Org. They don't understand you. You don't really are. You're not really on the same page as them. And, uh, and a lot of other factors, right, and including the cloistered lifestyle where you just don't have time to service those relationships. You know, I barely, I mean, I went way out of my way to maintain a relationship with my mother uh, the whole time I was in the Sea Org. And it was work. It was hard. I, if, if I had just gone with the inertia, and I did often, it wasn't like I was in touch with my mom regularly, but regularly enough that we maintain the relationship. But this, the pressures of the Sea Org and the, the negativity of the Sea Org about your family and about other things than the Sea Org is a constant refrain. You are hearing about it all the time. And you're always, it's in, and it's not just from a negative perspective, remember, but it's also from the positive perspective. You are being love-bombed and fed and given lots and lots of propaganda all the time at the events, at briefings, from your seniors, from other people, about how your mission and what you're involved in as a Sea Org member is the single most important thing in the universe. Not on the world, not in your city, not in your, not in your country, in the universe, <laughs> okay? The Sea Org do not think small. They think huge. They think they are the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the most intelligent, the most energetic, the most action uh, the most productive, the most, you know, ethical. I mean, the Sea Org is a, is a group of extremism. Everything is the ultimate of a thing, right? And so 
when you're in this kind of a mindset, it's already bad enough if you are in a group or in a situation or in a family or whatever where people are a little bit narcissistic or egotistical or self-centered and you betray them, right? It's already bad enough in that kind of a situation where they're going to turn their back on you. There's going to be screaming and fighting and arguing. Betrayal is a thing, and it's a pretty powerful thing. It's a mixture of a lot of different emotions that get mixed up into it. You have anger. You have fear. You have a loss. You have threat of loss. You have um, sundered ties, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's, there's, it's powerful. It, 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 it generates powerful emotions, the, 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 the subject of betrayal. And in fact, I looked this up a little bit, and there was a guy who wrote about this, and I'm just going to give a quote here. Betrayal is both a people problem and a philosopher's problem. Philosophers should be able to clarify the concept of betrayal, compare and contrast it with other moral concepts, and critically assess betrayal situations. At the practical level, people should be able to make honest sense of betrayal and also to temper its consequences, to handle it, not be assaulted by it. But the fact is that most people don't understand it well enough to be able to handle it. They just experience it. And so here's what happens when somebody like Mike Rinder goes and takes off. He leaves. He escapes. But from their point of view... He's abandoning them. He's abandoning all the principles of the group. All the moral and ethical foundations of the group have he cast to the wind. He, he basically shit all over Hubbard and Hubbard's take on the world and life. Mike was in a position, and everybody who knew him, especially his family, considered that he was well-indoctrinated, well-trained in Scientology principles, so he knew that it was his own overts that were causing him to leave, and he did it anyway, right? And that, that is a betrayal. That is a, my God, this man is so unethical. How could he abandon us? How could he just take off? So, of course, they were upset. And remember, Mike's history in the Sea Org prior to him leaving was a rocky history. He was in all kinds of trouble. He'd been in the hole for a very long time. He was in ethics trouble. He was on Miscavige's shit list, in other words. And he was for years. I mean, Miscavige was physically beating on him and, and, and watching Rathbun and others do the same. So Mike was not in a most favored person status, you know, as a high-ranking Sea Org member. His name was Mud already. And his family was probably upset with him, if anything, um, more so than they were feeling sorry for him. Or, or... They didn't really know a whole lot about any of that. But the point is, Mike was not in great standing. That is a certainty. And being in constant ethics trouble is a value judgment. But other Sea Org members, even your family and, and your own wife, will judge you for that, right? Why can't you get your shit together? Why are you always in trouble? Why can't you just do what Miscavige wants? Why are you always not complying? Why, 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 right? People who are outside of that circle of awful that is Miscavige's inner circle don't necessarily look to the victims of Miscavige as the victims. They look at them as the perpetrators, as the people who are causing Miscavige to go out of his way, to be bothered, distracted from his mission of leading Scientology. You know, you see what I mean? I mean, the loyalty thing here is really important. 
And so when you take off from that, when you blow, you leave, you're, from their point of view, you've betrayed every value you have, you have subscribed to. And you have broken every oath. You are a horrible person. And just because you're a family member, this is where we get this other level. In Scientology and in the Sea Org, you are not your body. And your familial connections mean very little compared to the connection to the church and the mission and the goal of, of Scientology. So, you know, what family, what single family, if I, were to, if I were to ask you the ethical question, even in an ethical debate, what family is more important than the world, <laughs> right, than everybody in the world? Well, it, obviously, you know, in, in, the, in the, the general scheme of things, there is no individual or group of people who are more important or more valued than everybody. And the mission of Scientology sells that they are fixing and correcting and rehabilitating and freeing everybody. And this gets in your face all the time as a Sea Org member. It's constant. It's, like I said, it's a constant refrain. So, um, so you're in a mindset that is a that 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 I I, I hope I'm getting across that, that that this is a very different mindset than you, me, in our day to day life where we are more able to sort of balance viewpoints and look at other people's perspectives and go, oh, yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't have to be right about this. Maybe you're right. That, that is not what's going on in the heads of any Sea Org members. Sea uh, Org members are incredibly arrogant people. They are incredibly conceited. They are egotistical like you would not believe. It took it, it, years of work on my part, trying to overcome that crap and not, you know, first realizing that it was there and then working to overcome it. So these are people who are extremely full of themselves. That's, that's a part of the extremism formula you see is, is, you, is you pump up a person's ego um, and their belief in the mission and the, and the cause of the extremism to such a degree that they are all in, they are fully invested and because they're so fully invested in that, they can't be as fully invested in anything else. And so family, friends, those are expendable, right? And that's, that's where Mike's family is and was, was and is at, uh, as demonstrated by their continual attacks against Mike and their continual work to try to lie and tarnish him. Uh, even years after the fact of this, I mean, his daughter, it's just, it, it's ludicrous. It's satirical at this point, how, how she's trying to carry on this campaign against Mike of, of how he's an abusive dad or some bullshit. I mean, it's just ludicrous, you know, but they just keep going because at the end of the day, okay. And at the bottom of all of this is when you're in the Sea Org and when you're on this mission, you don't have anything else. This becomes the only thing you have that really is 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 very important to you, and um, and that's kind of where they're at now. It's it's a it's a little sad, really, um, the dedication to such a such a destructive cause, but that's that's what we're seeing right in front of our eyes. And so you ask, how could this be? Well, I hope my answer gives you some idea of how this could be and why and. Um, and that's what I can tell you about it. I, there you go. TJ Feeney. I was wondering what you make of some right-wing personalities and political commentators that use logical arguments to make their point. The two that immediately come to mind are Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder. 
I find that I watch a lot of their videos online, and while I don't always agree with what they say, I often disagree, I find they can also have a very logical style looking at things, which I find it hard to disagree with. Also, especially with Steven Crowder, he often puts himself directly in the line of fire with his, with his change-my-mind debates. While you don't have to agree with his stance, and they're always on very controversial or hot-button subjects, I've always found that he's behaved professionally and calmly in these situations and seems to only present facts and logic. I think these are excellent, as I feel it's important to explain your side of an argument, which in any form would just evolve into shouting or anger. I find that these two get vilified in public, and very often it's because of their right-leaning stance on things. That being said, both sides are as guilty as the other of refusing to listen to the arguments because it doesn't fit with what they want to hear. All right, TJ, thank you for this question. I'll, I'll certainly take this up um, and tell you what I think. I, um, my, my, rather than necessarily get into my own individual opinions about Crowder or Shapiro, uh, I'll, I'll try to address this more broadly, maybe, um, although they are good examples of people who are willing to at least step up, put themselves on the line, and have debates, although Shapiro's debate style and um, and how he goes about that and who he debates with and that sort of thing are pretty suspect, right? And the man's ability to debate a lot, a revolves around a lot of rhetorical tricks, gish galopping, for example, where he'll just inundate you with things one after another, after another, after another, and you don't have a chance to respond. And, and when you pile on four or five or six logical fallacies on top of that, which Shapiro does all the time, then you end up with somebody who looks and sounds like a Harvard, you know, debate club champion but not somebody who's necessarily making actually logical points. And this is a very important distinction, and this is why it's very important to multiple source uh, when you are looking into um, things like this. You know, you don't stick with just one person because one of the most common fallacies or one of the most common tactics that, that, that they will utilize is to, is to simply omit facts or information that don't conform or comply with their point of view. And to present an argument that looks and sounds like it's a very well-reasoned, very rational argument, but when you omit fact A, B, and C out of your list of arguments or facts that, that, that back up your claim, when, when facts A, B, and C deny your claim or contradict your claim and you just simply ignore them and don't bring them up, then it makes you look smarter than you actually are, right? And it can fool people. It can give people a false impression of the overall situation you're arguing because you're only presenting your side of it, right? And this is why debate is so important to get both sides of it. But we don't always have fair debate when we have gishgoopping and other rhetorical tactics used to win the debate rather than actually talk facts, and this is really super important because what I just described is basically how almost every single internet debate I've ever seen is carried out, right? Is they're not necessarily good faith actors arguing with the full range of facts available to them. Okay, and of course, you're also talking here about politics. Now, Stephen Crowder and Ben Shapiro have very strong opinions, but let's remember their opinions. Those opinions are based on facts that can be presented to back up why they might be good opinions. But at the end of the day, politics is about opinion. 
facts don't point one to a Democratic or a conservative or a Republican. Facts are used to bolster ideas, but facts don't make those ideas. Emotions do. <laughs> Bias does. Upbringing does. Geography does. Those are the things that make a person decide what political leanings they're going to have. And then they use facts to bolster or justify their emotion-based opinions. And this is, this is all throughout politics, and it's one of the biggest mistakes I, one of the things I did not recognize or acknowledge or know about politics when I started talking about it. I did not get this, right? And so, you know, you think you're going to bring critical thinking and facts and reason into a topic that is a minefield of nothing but conflicting opinions, because at the end of the day, politics isn't necessarily about the best factual way to, to deal with a group of people or to issue laws and rules and guidelines for a society. Because, what is the, because the word best there is an opinion, right? What's best for me is not necessarily what's best for you. And it's competing interests. It's all about competing interests, and selfishness, really, right? And so, you know, for example, for example, and here's just a here's just a silly example to demonstrate my point, right? Is you're going to propose um, some some housing, some low income housing, or some affordable housing for seniors, let's say, in a neighborhood that has high property values, paid for by people who are in an upper wealth income bracket. And you're going to propose to zone an area of this neighborhood for this lower income housing. And what's it going to do? It's going to bring the property values down. And it's going to bring a lower class of people into this privileged neighborhood. So what do you see 100% of the time when this kind of thing is proposed? And what do you see on the left and the right? People on the left, people on the right. They go to the town meetings, they go to the city council, and they go, no, we don't want this. This is not something we want in our neighborhood. Put it in another neighborhood. Yes, I want low-income housing. Yes, I want affordable housing for people. Just not here. See? What's right and what's wrong there? What's best? Well, from their perspective, what's best is that their property values stay high the class of person in their neighborhood stay in their income bracket and their way of life be uh, kept the way that it is. That's best as far as they're concerned. But what's best for those low-income affordable housing people? To get more affordable housing so they have a place to live. And in a nice neighborhood, that would be kind of nice. So from their point of view, what's best is that they allow this housing to occur. So a Ben Shapiro or a Steven Crowder will, could come in from either direction and talk about all the facts and reasons, and they could do it in a very reasonable, very reasoned, critical thinking kind of way and make all the good arguments for why low-income housing absolutely positively should not be in this neighborhood and should be over in this other neighborhood where it's not going to bother any of us good people. And they could make very rational-sounding arguments in that direction. Does that mean they're right? Depends on you and your point of view as to whether they're right or not. You see? 
So this is this is the sort of relativity or the you know the 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 variability of 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 this and why good critical thinking skills are absolutely necessary to parse out logical fallacies and bullshit in their arguments but at the end of the day they're not going to necessarily lead you to the one right answer because the one right answer depends wholly on the value set morality and a uh, vision you have for how the world should look and sound and be, right? According to your standards, your ideas of how things should be. And it's that conflict, that back and forth that makes our society the way that it is, you see. So, um, so I'm, you know, so I'm really just kind of, I, I don't mean to sidestep your question. I'm trying to address it, but I'm trying to address it in a very broad, realistic way that there is no right and wrong sometimes. There's just opinions. There's just ideas about who's going to benefit and who's going to be harmed, right? And 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 people fight over this. They get they get very passionate about it sometimes. And um, and good critical thinking or good rational reasoning is only really useful to the degree that it bolsters or or backs up again your opinion, right, about the thing. So, so that's, that's what, that's, that's in politics and in lifestyle and in, you know, religion and this kind of stuff. This is why we can't bring it down or reduce it down to one right answer or the one true path or some nonsense like that. It just doesn't really work that way, right? Those are just idealized concepts that we teach to children so that they can have a simple way of navigating the world and make choices that will hopefully be you know, lead them down a road of uh, survival, of, of continuing to live. This is why we, we teach things like this good, bad, right, wrong, you know, what the right thing to do is. I mean, you know, these are relative concepts. And, and the thing about growing up and, and getting into the big wide world is realizing that it ain't that simple at all. And it never was. It was just a matter of we, we teach these things to kids and we think this way so that we can navigate the problems as best we can. But let's not pretend that that is a substitute for reality. Reality is a much more complicated and difficult problem. Anyway, I'm waxing a little philosophic there, but I hope that I hope that gives you something to think about at least. It's a little food for thought. And TJ, if this is not a satisfactory answer for you, if you wanted more of me critiquing Crowder or Shapiro or that kind of thing or something, just let me know. I'm I'm happy to talk about this more, but uh at least uh at least think about what I what I said here. Kevin Zay. Regarding the current situation with Vladimir Putin in Russia, I am seeing some very familiar and very frightening patterns here. We're seeing flimsy or blatantly false reasons for military action. We are seeing a desire for territorial expansion, or at least an expansion of a zone of influence, so to speak. We are seeing blame placed on and a blatant disregard for people of different ethnic backgrounds. We are also seeing praise, admiration, or indifference to Putin from politicians here and in other countries, not under the Russian sphere of influence. Are we in the beginning stages of something that we saw 80 plus years ago? Something that a lot of people vowed to never let happen again. Thanks, Kevin. Predictions on this kind of thing, of course, are, you know, a, a dime a dozen. And I don't know that it's that it's really in, in that I'm in a position to make predictions like that. But I will speak to some of the factors you brought up here. I don't see what, um, you know, Putin's expansionist territorial uh, 
efforts to uh, in Crimea and Ukraine with the with the little that I know about this. I don't see those efforts the same as what a man named Adolf Hitler was trying to do, you know, oh, those many years ago from Germany. I see a very, um, I see a lot of differences uh, here, mainly in terms of the economics of the situation, the structure of the situation, the nature of the Russian people and the Russian culture and the, and the, the expanse of Russia as a, as a country versus, you know, little tiny Germany. Um, and it's in its sort of expansionist ideas. Um, I also don't necessarily see the same degree here of ethnic issues. In other words, the Ukrainians are not being vilified the same way at all as the as the Jews or non-Germans or non-Aryans were by Hitler pre-World War and, po and during the, the war. Um, we don't see the same brand of, of propaganda occurring here. In other words, Ukrainians are not being referred to as rats, vermin, to be exterminated, this kind of thing, this kind of language, this very harsh, very dehumanizing, very othering kind of language. And let's face it, let's be really real here, that a lot of that only worked because it was building on centuries of anti-Semitism that was rife throughout Europe way before Hitler came on the scene. Now, I'm not saying that everybody was on the precipice of, you know, punching a Jew, but the anti-Semitism was what it was. And Hitler didn't, didn't create that out of a vacuum of nothing. He built his entire uh, propaganda effort on existing prejudices that were already there. So we don't see that kind of thing with Russians toward Ukrainians. Many Ukrainians are Russians. They speak Russian. They think with Russian. They, they you know, they came from Russia. So, um, so it's a little bit of a different situation here as far as the culture and the cultural mix and the othering that is going on. Putin used neo-Nazis as an excuse to go into the Ukraine and liberate them. But that has already, that, that whole line has already worn thin. And it's only been a couple weeks. You know, remember, Hitler's campaign was years in the making. Goebbels was not, a, a, was not an amateur. They really, really worked and worked and worked for months and years on the propaganda to uh, to indoctrinate the German people and its and their allies, and build on pre-existing. This is my point with the anti-Semitism. Build on and rile up pre-existing hatreds, and we don't have that same kind. At least from what I know, and if I'm wrong, let me know. But we don't have that same kind of pre-existing hatred towards Ukrainians that that, that existed toward the uh, Hitler's non-Aryan uh, thing. Um, okay, now as far as, you know, as far as the territorial reach and the effort to take on NATO and, okay, let's have us a war and this kind of thing, Putin's acting a bit nuts. And, as, and I don't know for sure that it's the case that he's, you know, quite gone off the deep end in terms of psychosis, but that certainly has been suggested to me by people who might know more than I do about this. So that's a possibility that Putin has just lost his damn mind. And he's just lashing out and doing this whole effort as some big Hail Mary to maintain power or keep things going or, or get Russia back into the limelight or, or put Russia back onto the international stage as a major power and reignite those Cold War fears and, and, uh, 
and fires, right? And and really kind of reestablish a Stalinistic kind of Russia. I've read that might be part of where he's coming from. So his motivations for this are questionable to to be sure, and probably just as psychotic as Hitler's uh, expansionist dreams and fantasies. So we can see similarities there, and Putin definitely needs to be stopped. What he's doing in the Ukraine and in Crimea and all of that is pretty nuts. It's also very Game of Thronesy, though, because if you go into the details of what's going on in the Ukraine, you have like three or four little breakaway areas already that Putin is uh, getting troops into. He's um, it, it, Ukraine is not like a united country. You know, it's a pretty interesting place. There's, it's been worked on for decades by the likes of Paul Manafort. Trump had his day screwing around with the president of the Ukraine. Remember that? Wasn't that long ago, guys. You know, that was the Ukraine Trump was messing with. Uh, that was the whole thing he got impeached for. And it really should have gone through because what Trump did over there was was really gross and uh, was the exact opposite of supporting the Ukraine against the Russian aggression. So, uh, so, so it's not like we've got super clean hands here in regards to the Ukraine. It's a messy situation with a lot of... A lot of fingers in that pie. A lot of people have tried to take a lot of advantage of the Ukraine over the years, not just Putin. But um, but clearly right now, Putin's the bad guy. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say we're as bad as Putin and his and his invasion right now. Not, I'm not I'm not using that language. I'm just saying nobody's really clean and innocent when it comes to the situation. So um, so there are a lot of uh, irons in the fire here. There's a lot of reasons why we need this, this situation stabilized right quick uh, because uh, they are a major wheat producer. They are, we have the whole gas and, and, and oil situation that is affecting all of us. If you're wondering why your gas prices are high right now, it has a lot less to do with Biden and a lot more to do with what's going on over in the Ukraine and in Europe right now. So um, anyway, just to just to kind of throw, put that out there, I know I'm going to get shit for that, but it's true, you know. Uh, so are we in the beginning stages of something we saw 80 plus years ago, though? I do not believe we are. I do not think this is analogous to Germans' expansionist plans and um, genocidal uh, fantasies of Hitler. I don't think Putin has the same kind of psychosis at all. Um, he's got other psychoses, but not that one. And I don't think he's trying to engage in ethnic genocide there. That's not, I don't think that's what's driving him. Now, it, I, I could be wrong. I, I will fully own that I could be wrong. And it's entirely possible that more awful might come out of Putin or out of, out of this situation. And it's an evolving situation. And that's why I said predictions are, you know, a bit of a dime a dozen right now. Everybody's trying to say, you know, what's going to happen. And if they're right, they get all the kudos for it, right? But while we forget about all the people who are saying what's going to happen, who are going to be dead wrong, right? They didn't guess right. So kind of like the stock market, you know, it's a little bit like that. Uh, anyway, so, we'll, so we're going to hear all kinds of things right now. We're going to see a lot of things right now. And as I was mentioning in my uh, live stream last night and there when we talked about this, be really have your media literacy hat on when you are watching news coming out of Russia or coming out of the Ukraine. Really be skeptical and critical of what you are hearing and seeing 
because there is a lot of clickbait. There is a lot of people who have a lot of reasons to lie to you about what's going on over there. And you and and it it's worth taking the time to double, triple check your facts and find out what's actually going on versus the propaganda of what could happen, what should happen, what might happen. There's an awful lot of disaster oriented reporting right now trying to make a really bad situation even worse. I hate that that is that way. I despise the media people who do that, but they do it because we respond to it. And so I ask you to please be skeptical, be critical uh, of the news that you are hearing and, and just be careful of what you choose to believe about this whole situation. It's a bad situation. There's a lot of uh, bad consequences coming out of it, intended and unintended. And then there's another layer of people who just want to make it worse to sell things to you. So, you know, like I said, beware. I don't know, Kevin, let me know uh, what you think of that answer, if that helps at all in terms of uh, how you're looking at this, or if you have any other aspects of it that you want my, my take on. Tyler Simmons. I have a habit of viewing authoritarians as being middle to elderly age. I have this notion that authoritarians tend to skew old. Is the assumption wrong that as people age, they become more authoritarian? Yeah, Tyler, it is a little wrong that that would be an assumption on, on, on your part that would be wrong. You are going to find plenty of teens and people in their 20s who are extremely authoritarian in their point of view or how they think things should be. Uh, bullies, for example. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, if you kind of think about that and extend that thinking of what is bullying, what is tormenting your fellow classmates in high school all about if not, author you know, sort of proto-authoritarianism uh, rearing its ugly head through this person's personality, right, and their actions. So, um, so no, it's not just old people. It is, it tend, you, you tend to be exposed to and see older authoritarians because that's how long it takes to get control of a country <laughs> or how long it takes to build up a group and be a cult leader, right, is it's not something people tend to do when they're young. Uh, they tend to do it when they're older, a little bit more experienced, a little bit more knowledgeable about how to manipulate people and how to get, you know, rise in the in the ladder. Uh, so that's that's one reason why I think you might think that this is the case, that it's only older people. And of course, there is the fact that as people do get older, they do calcify and solidify on their on their um views and opinions of things. That is true. But you can also get the opposite effect where people can be staunchly progressive or staunchly more of whatever it is they are because they just become more set in their ways and they stop thinking critically and they just accept this is how it is, you know, that kind of thing. You do tend to see that as people get older, a certain percentage of them. And there's biological reasons for that too. The plasticity of the brain is a thing that continues on. But uh, apparently, it's a little harder for it to realign itself, takes a little longer. It's kind of like your muscles. It's harder to build muscle tissue as you get older, simply because your muscles just get a little tired and aren't and so interested in building up anymore. Um, same with the brain, right? As you get older, it's not as open to new ideas and sponge-like as it is when you're a kid, because you're, you know, because parts of your brain are already dedicated to no, this is my worldview, this is how I think, and I this I don't want to change my mind, 
you know? So uh, you can kind of think of it that way, I guess, a little bit. And uh, there you go. Adam Masters. You and other critics have shown that David Miscavige is constantly micromanaging Scientology. Why does he go to the effort, at least publicly, to try and show that he is separate from the day-to-day running of the church and just, quote, safeguarding the technology? Do you think it makes a difference if, in the minds of public Scientologists, when they find out how heavily he has been involved in updating LRH materials or running the church contrary to LRH policy? despite the fact that RH policy is so unwieldy and contradictory. Do the majority of Scientologists believe that international management and the Watchdog Committee are actually working properly and doing their jobs? I'm sure that most public Scientologists don't really care about the details of how it all works, but how important to them is it that those parts of the organization actually exist? Most of us don't care about the ins and outs of how the government works, But at least in democratic countries, we know why it's there and how it should, in theory, work to protect the rights of ordinary citizens. I'm sure that Scientology is set up more like a communist regime where Miscavige can take all the credit but pass the blame for failure and hardships onto a faceless bureaucracy. I understand that the separation of Miscavige from day-to-day management may also be for an external audience, much like how Hubbard went into hiding to avoid liability for criminal acts and lawsuits. However, is this more of a secondary concern for how the church is currently run? Thanks for this question, Adam. And no, it's not a secondary concern. Miscavige must maintain plausible deniability. That is a legal defense. That's not, not that those words. I mean, as a legal defense, that's why he does that. That's why he has to constantly put out there that he's not the guy making all the day-to-day decisions. And this is why... He keeps these international executives around, even though he's got them off post or not working or not doing the job that they say they're doing, but they're around. Why are they around? Why does he keep these people? Because they are a layer of defense for him, a buffer zone in case shit gets real and the feds come after him or or other legal uh, entanglements occur like the Masterson case, right, where he's got 30 people between him and that courtroom to fall on their swords if they need to, to protect him so that he is kept out of jail and kept away from the consequences of his uh, decisions and his acts, right? Because Miscavige owns Scientology 100%, and his slightest whim is everybody else's command. So ultimately, he is fully responsible for what's going on in Scientology right now, and his fingers are in every pie, But he won't let anyone outside of the world of Scientology know that because that would make him liable for those decisions. And that would make him responsible for them. And he could be called to onto the carpet. He could be called into the courtroom. He could be called into deposition. If his name is connected in any way with the actions of, let's say, covering up rape, as was done in Masterson's case, according to what we know about that, right? They covered up reports, destroyed evidence. Same with Lisa McPherson. But Marty Mc, Marty uh, Rathbun was the one who took the, the blame for all that. I, I destroyed the evidence. I shredded it. I ordered it to be shredded. Well, great. So, you know, you think Miscavige doesn't know about that? Of course he does. He knows everything about that. Uh, you know, if he didn't want that to happen, it wouldn't have happened. But he absolutely ordered it to be done, and it got done. But, you know, he doesn't have to ever take responsibility for that because he's not the guy 
who's micromanaging Scientology, see? But he's also the one leading the charge. And I mean, it's, it's just such more contradictions and nonsense from that world. As far as what Scientologists think, I think you kind of nailed it with your analogy of how people think about the government, right? You can go take a civics class. You learn the basics of it in high school. This is how our government is structured and run. But the details, of course, are where all the devils are. And, uh, and there's lots and lots of layers to our government that go far beyond what you learn about in your civics class. Um, so the day-to-day -day operations of, of these things are really not very interesting to most people. What goes on in Scientology with its management structure and functions, same. Most public Scientologists couldn't care less. All they want is their auditing and to become gods. And, uh, and if they can do that and keep paying their money and get their euphoria uh, hits and their dopamine hits and feel like they're making progress towards their personal spiritual immortality, they really don't care. And let's be blunt, they don't care about the abuses that the Sea Org goes through either. Because as far as the Scientologists are concerned, those are the dedicated few, see? They put themselves there. They, they are there in order to forward Scientology. And so they don't, they're there, so I don't have to be, see? That's the, that's the public Scientologist's point of view, is they're there to just take advantage of that. Uh, and if that sounds a little narcissistic, it's because it is. <laughs> so there you go. Jonathan Perry, when you're trying to exorcise the body thetans in the upper OT levels, how do you know that they want to leave? What happened to them when they leave? Can they find a new body or do they just find someone or something else to get stuck to? All you could do is kind of shoo them away. They can't be destroyed, correct? All right. No, you're not just exorcising them by shooing them away. When you're on the OT levels, you are rehabilitating these dormant, unconscious, nearly lifeless spiritual entities called body thetans. Okay, so these body thetans are glommed onto you. They make up your body. And as far as your spiritual perceptions go, at least, and don't ask me to explain that because it doesn't really make any damn sense, but that's what Hubbard says. And so, um, so you have all these body thetans connected to you. And these are thetans just like you. So they want to be free. They want to be, uh, you know, roaming around the universe. They want to be awake. They want to be alive. Uh, they're not going to, you know, they'll, they might resist you when you try to wake them up and rehabilitate them. But uh, at the end of the day, they they're, they want to be free just like you. Now, let's also keep in mind, as I say all of this, that all of this is just a figment of everybody's imagination. Okay, there are no body thetans. They don't want anything because they're not real. They're about as real as Smurfs. You know, so so when I talk about this, I'm talking about this in the same tongue-in-cheek way that I would refer to what, you know, Gargamel or Papa Smurf want. You know what I mean? Like, it's really about that important. But anyway, as far as your question goes, um, the idea that, that Scientologists have is that they are not just waking these Thetans up. They are rehabilitating them, even clearing them and shipping them off to go get their own body and be free, right? And do the rest of the Scientology bridge and that sort of thing. That's the goal. And, um, and that's what I can tell you about that. 
All right, guys, that was our show for this week. I hope these answers were, you know, at least food for thought for you and um, and uh, entertaining. <laughs> so thanks very much for coming around and hearing me blab on like this. I very much appreciate your questions, and I want you to keep sending them to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or, like I said, leave them in the comments section to this video. Thanks, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.